Thank you for joining us on our podcast for Faith Center Church. We hope today's message builds you up and brings you hope right where you're at. Hope you enjoyed the message. We serve a God who cannot fail. Come on, let's just give the Lord one more hand clap of praise. He's worthy, amen? He's worthy. He's so worthy. I want you to turn this morning with me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. And also, please, when you're praying today, be in prayer for the Sooner fans. We took a licking yesterday. (laughs) But you know what? I'm not bitter about it. I know some are, but I'm not. It's good every now and then to let little brother win one. so wrong. That's so bad. That's so bad. (laughs) Okay, let's get the anointing back here. John chapter 21, verse 1 through 9 says, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias or Galilee. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, this is key right here, I'm going fishing. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? Sarcasm intended. They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side. Everybody say the right side. We're going to talk about the right side a little bit this morning. On the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loves said to Peter, it is the Lord. That's what John said, it's the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Father, speak to every one of us today. In Jesus' name I pray. All the God's people said, I want to talk to you today on the subject of faith after failure. Write that down. That's the title. Faith after failure. Because each and every one of us in this room today, I promise you, we've all prayed, believed for something in our lives at one time or another, only to see nothing transpire. Listen, church, there are a few guarantees in life. Just a very few. But there is one I can guarantee will happen to each and every one of us. And that is we will all experience failure one time or another in our life. Failure can be defined as a situation or occurrence in which something does not work out as it should. And if we were to be honest, we would have to admit in one area of our life or another, we've experienced failure. Or maybe we're currently experiencing some failure. There will always be the outcomes 
inconsistent with our expectations, church. There are some things that we have invested our time, our talent, our resources financially, only to experience an outcome. Let's just be honest. Well, it's disappointing, right? Am I the only one? Okay. So we all ultimately deal with a degree and dimension of failure. No matter how proactive we are, no matter how passionate we are, no matter how prepared we are, this thing called failure is a relentless stalker. That reality is that one season in your life or another, failure will chase you down, tap you on the shoulder and say, let me stay with you a little while. Let me sit with you a little while. Anybody ever experienced that? Whew. It's not a fun place to be, is it not? Three ways that you can deal with failure. Number one, you've got to realize we are imperfect people. I don't care how highly you think about yourself, we are imperfect people. When I say imperfection, I don't mean we do some things imperfectly because the nature, watch this, of imperfection suggests that we do everything imperfectly. There are some things that we do better than others. But we engage in no activity at any point that is independent of some sort of mistake consciously or unconsciously. So here's what that means. There will be times when we contribute to our own calamity. Our own mess-ups. Because I don't care how well-intentioned you are or how meticulous you may be, we operate with a degree of imperfection because we're human. That means there are some things, church, that I don't know. I know you find that hard to believe. But there are a few things that I don't know. So therefore, I'm making decisions, and you're making decisions with limited information that's exposed to you. And the quality of my decisions is tied to the quality of the information that I have. I'm laying some groundwork for you here right now. So don't, don't tune me out. Get this right here. So as confident as I may be, or as I am, and as convinced as I am sometimes, I've got to recognize there are still some things God knows that I don't know. We're, imper we're imperfect. And as a result, we make imperfect decisions. And it also means, watch this, write this down. I have imperfect emotions. I have imperfect emotions. God is the only one who operates in perfection. Everything he feels should be felt. So just because the feelings are real doesn't mean they're right. Because my emotions aren't perfect. That means sometimes we're offended. And we shouldn't be. Sometimes we feel neglected and we shouldn't. Sometimes we feel dismissed and we shouldn't. But God has perfect emotions. So what's this? When he feels jealous, he should. The Bible says he's a jealous God. That's an emotion. Because we are imperfect emotionally means that our emotions are from time to time going to impact decisions that we make. It's going to create in our life imperfect decisions. I've made a few. 
So I'm going to, here's what that means. I'm going to mismanage some opportunities. I'm going to make mistakes with relationships. I'm going to miss it with certain conversations. It doesn't mean I'm evil. It just means I'm imperfect. And imperfection, what's this? Imperfection versus perfection is human divine instinctive. It's a human divine instinctive. It's what distinguishes the human from the divine. And the reality of my imperfection is not intended to make me feel less about myself. It's not intended to make me feel worse about me. Watch this. It's intended for me to feel better about God. That's it, church, right there. It's, it's intended for me to feel better about the God I serve. So the revelation of what I'm not should not produce focus on what I'm not. It should produce focus on who God is. That's, that's good preaching. If I say so myself. See, I need Him. I love Him. He's keeping me. He's protecting me. Even when I make wrong decisions and still got in the right room. That wasn't me. That was God. And not only are we imperfect people, we're also in relationship with imperfect people. Our life is not only impacted by the reality of our imperfections, our life is also impacted by the reality of the imperfections of those that we're in relationship with. That's why, that's why God says, a whole lot about that in Scripture, about behavior. Because he's not just thinking about you, he knows the implications of our behavior goes beyond us. This is the way, look at Proverbs 13, 20. This is the way Solomon put it. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. So I become like who I walk with. I become like who I associate with. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. You see, I don't have to be a fool to suffer harm. I just have to be a companion to a person that is spiritually insensitive and unaware. So when you have children... Your life is impacted by their decisions. When you say, I do, your life is impacted by their decisions. Family, parents, your life is impacted by their decisions. And there are times when things just don't turn out the way they should. Not because of our imperfections, but because of imperfections of those that we're in relationship with. And here's another thing. It's not just that sometimes marriages or relationships don't work because no one wanted them to work, but we're impacted by the imperfections of those other people. Okay, so watch this. I'm an imperfect person, and I'm in an imperfect relationship with imperfect people. Now, thirdly here, I live in an imperfect place. This earth, this world, imperfect. And the scripture speaks to this, that the world does not exist as God intended. So when we see bad things happen to good people, and we see that a lot, 
It confuses us. But God consistently through Scripture communicates that this world is like this, and that's why God created another world. So there are circumstances, church, sometimes that are beyond our control that contribute to whether or not things turn out the way they should. Pray about it all you want, and you should pray about it. But there are imperfect people you're praying for. And some of the decisions they made, they've got to suffer the consequence for. I don't care how powerful of an intercessor you may be. Listen, you can watch this. You can build a sturdy, you can build a strong home, but you can't control if a hurricane comes or not. See what I mean? You can drive your, on your side of the road. You can be a very responsible driver, 10 and 2. But you can't control what the person in the other car next to you does. That's what I'm talking about. You can determine your behavior, but you can't control your genetic tendencies and bloodline issues and things that are passed down. So sometimes it's not that I happen or others happen. Sometimes it's just life happens. And it stops things from turning out the way they should. Am I making sense to anybody today? Okay. However, because I'm a preacher or one who speaks on behalf of another, I am a presenter of the gospel. And gospel means this, good news. Man, he's taught us that. Gospel means good news. So I have said all that I have said to say this. I got some good news today. I know it may not seem like it, but I've got some good news today. And here's the good news. I'm not articulating what I'm articulating about failure to reveal to you what is not possible. I am articulating what I'm articulating about failure to help you see that failure can simply be a path to possibility. A path, hear that, a path, watch. We will have failure, but whether or not failure has us is based on whether or not we see failure as a place or a path. The difference between those who recover and those who don't is not always their experiences with failure, but their view of failure. See, some people saw failure as a grave. Others saw, other people saw it as a path. And those that see it as a place stay where they are and complain about how Judas put me there. And how I didn't deserve this. Or how Pilate didn't have enough courage to stop this. And they had pity parties in that place. But watch this. Those that see it as a path say, I'm here, but I'm only going to be here for three days. <laughs> and early Sunday morning, I'm gathering... I'm getting myself up and I'm getting out of here. Because this isn't a place for me, this is a path for me. Maybe your last relationship did not work out. But it doesn't have to be your place, let it be your path. Whew. Maybe your last business venture failed. But it doesn't have to be your place, let it be your path. Maybe your last spiritual adventure didn't turn out the way you anticipated. Don't let it become a place. 
Let it be a path. The Bible says what? Though I walk through the valley of shadow of death. See, it's not failure itself that makes failure final. I'll say that again. It's not failure itself that makes failure final. It's not failure. It's how you see it. Is it a place or is it a path? The text that we read in John 21 is an example of what I'm trying to talk to you today about. We read it together. Look at John 21.1 again. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Now, this, what we just read, seems simple and unnecessary. Why do you think that John gives us all this detail? He didn't just say he appeared. He said he appeared again. And he didn't stop at saying he appeared again. He said he appeared again by the Sea of Tiberias or Galilee. So it seems as if John is taking some extra effort to give us some detail that seems a little bit unnecessary. But here's what you have to keep in mind. There's nothing in the Word of God that's unnecessary. Nothing. So why does John tell us that he appears again on the Sea of Galilee? These details are very important because without these details, we wouldn't know if Jesus fulfilled a prophetic promise that he made after the resurrection. In Matthew 28, Jesus has risen from the dead he, and he's going before them to Galilee, and it says, there you will see him. Mary comes to the tomb looking for Jesus. Remember this? What did the angel of the Lord say? He's not here. He says, Mary, go tell the disciples that you're looking for him in the tomb, but you're only going to find him in Galilee. He's not here. So he promised to meet them at a place. And so when John tells us he appears again by the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias, he is showing us the fulfillment, church, of a prophetic promise. He's saying, I will show up if you meet me where I send you. Don't miss that. I will show up if you meet me where I send you. And some of you are looking for me, but you're not at Galilee. See, some of you are looking for God in some areas of your life, and He's not there because that's not where He said He'd be. Because some of you are like, now, where's God at in this situation? He's at Galilee. He's where He said He'd be. But He's not in my situation, no. He's where He said He'd be. Where am I? And God's like, I'm at the place I sent you. God, where are you? I'm at the place I sent you. And if you go to the place that God sent you, and I'm just not just talking physically, but maybe spirit, emotionally or spiritually, God is saying to you, get to where I sent you. And he gives them instructions on where to go. Now, watch this. The disciples responded with placement. Important here. I'm going to use a prophetic word as an example. 
if we become beneficiaries of a prophetic word, and all we do is praise Him, which is not a bad thing, but if all we do is praise Him, we mismanage and become poor stewards of a prophetic word. Hear that, church. I'm, I haven't lost my locker. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm preaching right here. A prophetic word, listen to this, a prophetic word doesn't come to just move you emotionally. It comes to move you physically. He says, I'm telling you this so you can get to Galilee and be at Galilee at the right time. The right time. Everybody say right time. So your movement and placement is actually an indication, church, or revelation regarding whether or not you actually believe the word. Because you can't tell me you believe it's going to rain and you're not building an ark, Noah. Yeah. If you believe God is going to do exceedingly and abundantly above all, you can ask or think, are you building an ark? Are you managing your life that way? Are you making sure your enemies don't have ammunition to use against you. So watch this. The disciples, they go to Galilee. This is really cool right here. This is really interesting. The disciples go to Galilee. John tells us, Peter says, I'm about to go, what? Fishing. I'm glad you're here, Randy. Wave at me, Randy. But see Randy right there? Rand, I'm going to give Randy a little commercial. He's a fishing guide at Texoma. Been there for over 30 years. Does a phenomenal job. If you ever want to go and guarantee you'll catch fish, go see Randy. Because he's good at it. John tells us, Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now this seems insignificant. It seems, why is he telling us? That's unnecessary. Why do we need to know that Peter's going fishing? There's something to this church. Let's not look past it. Remember, Peter is a fisherman by trade. Fishing was what he was doing before Jesus found him. Okay? When Jesus called him, he called him from doing one kind of fishing to another. He didn't really change the activity. He redeemed the expression. He said, you're going to do the same thing. You're just going to do it differently. Fishing is what he did. Jesus, what's Jesus didn't change what he did. He just changed how he was doing it. Me, Jesus may not change what you're doing. He may just change how you're doing it. Jesus said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now this is very interesting because he's going fishing. This would not be an issue without understanding the story behind the statement. Because it's not just what he said. What we need to ask is, why did he say it? Keep in mind, this right here is after a string of disappointments, beginning with Judas. We don't hear this talked about or preached about very much, how Judas' betrayal affected the disciples. I'm going to tell you something. I dug for this sermon. Hours on this sermon. Judas's betrayal affected the disciples, especially John, because John was always bragging how much he loved Jesus. John was like, I love this man. 
And you just did what you did to him. So there is a string of disappointment. And also, there's also personal failure here. You've got Judas's disappointment. You've got Peter. Got his own denial issues. And what does he say? I'm going back to fishing. When did he say, I'm going back to fishing? After he failed. I failed him. He told me I was going to deny him three times. I said, I'll never leave you. I'll never do it. And I denied him three times. Maybe Peter has experienced personal failure to a degree, church, that he's assuming that all Jesus had promised him prior to his failure is no longer on the table. It's no longer an option. Peter had to be thinking to himself, all the stuff you said to me about being a rock and the stuff you said to me about your declaration, you know, your declaration being a revelation on which I was going to build my church. All these things he said he was going to do for me is no longer an option. Why? Peter, Peter says, because I failed. I failed. Maybe I disqualify myself from what I feel destined for. Therefore, he resorts to go back to what he used to do. Because he's no longer qualified to do what God's called him to do. And that's to fish for men. Faith after failure. That's what we're talking about today. Faith after you fail. How many be honest and you failed? I failed something. You've got to have faith. Faith after that failure. And so as it was for Peter, so it is for you and I. It's, expo- it's very possible to experience Failure to the degree that you make assumptions about your assignment. I'm no longer qualified. I let him down. That's the enemy whispering to you. Forget what he called you to do. You can't do it. What, here's the, here's the question, write this down. What message are you allowing the failure to send you? What message? Jesus, notice this, Jesus never said he was done with Peter, but somebody told Peter that. It's probably the failure. Because hear me, church, failure has a voice. Failure doesn't just talk about your past. Failure talks about your future. You'll never get there. You'll never make it now. You're a failure. When you fail in the present, failure starts talking about what's not going to happen in your future. And I believe, personally, that failure started talking to Peter right here. Failure probably said things to Peter like everybody knows. You denied him. Everybody knows. Look at your reputation. How can you look your peers in the face? And Peter thinks, how am I going to look Jesus in the face? I'm going back fishing, Randy. Now watch this. Here's the danger and the approach. The text says, when Peter says, I'm going fishing in verse 3, the disciples said what? We'll go with you. Talk about a bunch of followers. Well, we'll go too. Okay, let's go fishing. Look at John 21.3. 
Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going with you. Stop right there. We're going with you. We're going with you also. So basically, Peter says, I'm going backwards. Because why? This is what I know I can do. I'm good at fishing. I'm going to go back to what I know that I'm good at. This is what I'm going to have to settle for. And as a result of that, Peter doesn't even see his influence, church, on his friends, his disciple buddies. So his failure is telling him something about his influence that the disciples' actions are refuting. The fact that the disciples said, we will go with you, is an indication he still got influence with them. But Peter doesn't see that. He thought he's lost it. I don't have any influence anymore. Hear me. Write this down. When you go backwards, you take people with you. When you don't move into what God's called you to move in, and you go backwards, you take people with you. So they got on the boat. Watch. They fished all night long and caught absolutely nothing. Zero. Nothing. Randy, have you ever gone and caught absolutely nothing? Watch this. They know how to fish. It's what they do. Here's the thing. When you try to go backwards, and God's called you to go forward, what worked in a previous season won't work in this season. He says, you think you can go back to that? But you can't. Because I've removed my blessing. I've removed my endorsement. You see, you think you can go back because you have this skill set. But you still don't know. In order to fish well, you need favor. You got the skill set, but you still need Jesus, church. I know some of you are very good at what you do, but you still need Jesus. I mean, even when you thought it was your, all your skill set, it was Jesus. <laughs> even when you weren't looking toward Jesus, He was looking toward you. He's looking out for you. You know what I call that church? I call it, He'll reign on the just and the unjust. John Wesley calls it prevenient grace. I love this. What is prevenient grace? I'm glad you asked. It is a grace that is extended to you before you have a revelation of what grace is. It is a grace that draws you into a revelation of God's grace. It is grace that you are mislabeling before you got into a relationship with God. It's grace that you call luck. karma, good fortune. And God's like, you got no idea. I've been looking out for you in a previous season. Whew. Because I knew there was coming a season where you would be in a relationship with me. I knew you'd eventually come to your senses. Church, you can't just go back because you got a skill set. Now, all of a sudden, 
they look out to shore and they see somebody standing there. Look at verse 4, 21. But when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So they got, they've been fishing all night long. But early in the morning, Jesus is on the shore. So here's what I'm thinking. Well, my mind goes some funky places, okay? So here's what I'm thinking. Why did you let them fish all night long? Why did you wait until the morning to come stand on the shore? Couldn't Jesus come at night because he walked on water at night? Remember that story? Maybe, this is key, don't miss this. Maybe Jesus came early in the morning because they wouldn't be as open to instruction if they hadn't come up empty all night. Some people won't listen to your advice because their net has not been empty long enough. And they're not listening to you. You tried to help them at night, but you should have waited until the morning time. Their net is empty. But they still think they're experts. We're good at this. I know it don't show, but we're good at this. And Jesus said, let them do this all night because they're going to obey my instruction without an argument come morning time, I promise you. The writer doesn't say, have you caught any fish? Catch this. John says that Jesus calls to them and says, friends, haven't you any fish? There's a difference. There's a difference between haven't you caught something and y'all ain't caught nothing. There's a difference. Jesus said, y'all haven't caught anything? They said, nope, not zero. Look at verse 6, John 21. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. We'll stop right there. This is where it gets good. I got seven minutes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it home. You ready? They have been in that same sea, in that same boat, with that same net all night and caught nothing. They could have assumed that the sea was the problem. Because what will you do when you fail? You make mistakes. I mean, you make, you make excuses for yourself. They could have said, well, the sea's the problem, or, or the boat's the problem, or the net, and, you know, the net just not, the, it's not working right. But Jesus said, I want you to use that same boat, that same sea, take that same net, I just want you to throw it on a different side of the boat. I don't have time, church, to do it today, but if I did, I'd talk to you about the right side. Sometimes we come up empty because we're not throwing it on the right side. So they come up with a net full of fish when they throw it on the right side. Net so full is break, I mean, a load so full of fish is breaking their nets. Look at verse 7. Therefore the disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Peter immediately jumps into the sea, swims ashore, and the Bible says Jesus had a fire started. Look at verse 9. As soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it and bread. Fish are already on the fire. He's already got fish. 
They fishing for fish. He already got fish. And Jesus is telling him to get what he already has. He's already got it. What was Jesus doing here? He wasn't going to give them his. He was showing them how to get their own. Everything you have need of is inside you. Jesus has already got. It's already there. He's just got to teach you how to get it for yourself. The Bible goes on to say, they come together, sit down, and have breakfast. As I'm reading this, and as I'm looking at everything they had to overcome to actually have this experience, and we talked about you know, Peter's personal failure here, but then also they had a season or a night of empty nets. So we got personal failure, then we got empty nets. So here's the question I ask myself. When it comes to failure, are we, going, are we examining the survival of the wrong things? When it comes to failure, are we examining the survival of wrong things? Because when you look at this text, they lost a lot, but his faith survived. His faith survived failure. Did your business, your job, your church survive quarantine and lockdown that we had to go through? Did your relationship survive challenges? And there's another question. Did your faith survive your failure? Are you still waiting to throw your net on the right side of the boat when you fell personally and you fished and you came up with empty nets? So, have you gone back fishing? Not physically, but mentally. Well, what do you mean? Have you come to a conclusion as a result of your personal failure and empty nets that God can't do or God won't do what he intended to do through you? Because if you have consciously or unconsciously come to that conclusion, you, my friend, have gone back fishing. And you survived failure, but your faith didn't. And your faith hasn't. And I told somebody, I said, I may step on a few toes here today, but I crushed my own before I'm crushing yours. I'm here to tell you, church, go back and get your faith. I'm not asking, did you just survive? I'm asking, did your faith survive? See, this story teaches us the power of faith after failure. The belief that God is faithful and what He accomplishes in and through and for us is tied and predicated to His goodness and not just our goodness. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Are you allowing church failure to speak in the place of God to you? Is it having the final say? Listen, they would have missed out on a miracle if they would have let personal failure and empty nets cause them not to try again. Here's what I'm praying today, church. That won't be you. Because I can promise you one thing. I would have quit everything if it was based on how many times I failed. There have been times I have preached a sermon, got in my truck, gone home, and think to myself, I don't even, never need to ever get back in that pulpit again. That was bad. 
times when I didn't know if I'd survive, but faith did. Here's something that I think you should write down. It's, my, it's, my, it's a personal quote that I came up with. And I'll read it to you. I refuse to downgrade my purpose to match my reality. Instead, I choose to upgrade my faith to match my destiny. Let me say it again. Some of you couldn't write that fast. I refuse to downgrade my purpose to match my reality. I choose to upgrade my faith to match my destiny. And the question that I have for you today is this. Do you still believe? Because you can't allow the consequences of failure to turn into condemnation. My goodness, the enemy loves to use failure as in condemnation. And that's what I want to pray for you today. Condemnation, guilt, shame. You know what it is? All those three things? Condemnation, guilt, shame are kryptonite to faith. Kryptonite. Because here's what happened. It puts you in a place, in a position that you think you're not worthy enough. Well, none of us are, but through Jesus, we're all worthy. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. I'm done. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, how many here have been dealing with guilt, shame, condemnation because of past failures or maybe current failures and you just can't seem to get over the hump? Let me see your hand. I see them. Amen. My hand's raised too. I'll be honest with you. Father, you see every hand. But God, more importantly, you see every heart. God, you know the shame, the guilt, the condemnation they have dealt with because the enemy has lied and lied and lied to them. But Father, I thank you today that you are saying to those that are feeling that shame, guilt, and condemnation that you are enough. You have never failed them. Lord, we fail you all the time, but you have never failed us. And Father, I thank you that you're extending our faith to overcome our failure right now in Jesus' name. And enemy, I put you on notice. Your assignment is through and broken off of these lives here today. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, haven't done this in a while, but I feel led to do this today. No one's looking around. I want to ask a simple question. Do you know Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior? If you don't, you're going to battle failure. You're going to battle condemnation. You're going to battle guilt and shame for the rest of your life until you do. But when you know Christ, you have freedom from guilt, condemnation, and shame. When you know Christ in a personal way, what that means is you have a relationship with Him. You walk with Him. You talk with Him. You have someone to go to when you fail. You see, many times people come into church and they sit there and they listen to a preacher. Heads bowed and eyes closed still. 
And maybe they say a prayer. But they say it because their husband or wife or friend next to them said it. Or maybe they walk forward in a church or in a church service in an altar call to receive Christ. But they do it because they didn't want to be the only one left on that road when everybody else went forward. The Bible says that unless the Spirit of God draw you unto salvation, you cannot be saved. There must be a drawing. The Holy Spirit must draw you. What's happening right there is He's extending faith to you to receive Christ as your Savior. And so if you're here today and you feel a tug at your heart, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm not 100% sure that I know Christ in a personal way. Listen, if you're not 100% sure, I'm 100% sure you don't. Here's why I say that, because I know that I know that I know Christ in a personal way. I'm not perfect. I fail all the time. But I can tell you this. I have someone to take my failure to. I have a relationship with Christ. This is going to probably be the easiest you've ever had to accept Christ. I won't embarrass you in any way. I won't, I won't ask you to walk forward. I won't ask you to do anything but simply allow me to count you in a simple prayer of faith and forgiveness and salvation. So if you're here and you're not 100% sure that you know Christ in a personal way, you say, Craig, I know. I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that if I was to die today that I would enter, enter into heaven and God would look at me and say, enter in thy good and faithful servant. There's some doubt in my heart. If you want to erase, simple. When I count to three, raise your hand and you put it right back down. One, two, three. Okay? 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 Father, thank you for every hand that just lifted. Lord, I believe they lifted that by faith. I believe they're receiving your son, Jesus, by faith right now. By faith we are saved, not of ourselves. So, Father, I pray that you receive that faith in Jesus' name. As a matter of fact, I want everybody to say this prayer with me. It's for those that raise their hand. But everyone be so kind to say, Dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I ask you to come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. I know today I'm not becoming religious. Today, I receive Jesus as my Lord and as my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.